Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. We've got a heavy chapter to go through today in chapter 12. And I promise this will not take until the rapture. I assure you, we will get through this today. But it is a very deep chapter and... Really, chapter 12 gives us an overview of the entire Bible, and it's pretty amazing. I also know what it is to live and feel like RC 365 days a year with this voice. It's... (laughs) So we're going to start out on slide four. Austin, if you can go two more ahead. Uh, Next one. I'm sorry, go back one. Oh, the numbers up on the screen are off. That's okay. There you go. All right, so, so we're in chapter 12, and just as a quick, very quick overview, we're going through, we've been going through the book of Revelation verse by verse, and chapter 1 was the, was the unveiling of who Jesus really is and the authority that he truly holds. That's the unveiling. That's what the word revelation truly means, is just to unveil something, to make something known. And it's apocalypsis in the Greek. It's amazing, again, to me, as we continue to study this book, that the world is utterly terrified about really who Jesus is, the unveiling of him. That's why there's such a negative connotation with the word apocalypse. But chapters 2 and 3 were the seven letters of seven churches. And then from there, and which are the two most important chapters for us in the book, because chapter 4, verse 1, is the rapture. And then eternity, and then us up in heaven, waiting for Jesus to return when we are with him in Revelation 19. So we're in that time period now where we've been, the church has been raptured out. We're in heaven, awaiting Jesus to return while he brings another group of people for himself out of the world. And so we went through, starting in chapter six, we had the six seals. And what I want you to notice is, again, it's this heptatic structure of three groups of seven, and then there's six, and then a break where we talk about something else that's going on in the world. Then the seventh opens up the next grouping of seven. So we've gone through the six seals, the break in chapter seven. The seventh seal opened up the seven trumpets. We've gone through the six trumpets, and now we're in that break of five chapters from chapter 10 to 14 before we get to the seventh trumpet, which opens the final group of judgments, the seven bowls. So we're in that parentheses in chapter 12 from chapter 10 through 14. And chapter 12 gives us, it's incredible because it's talking about something else. Remember, these these breaks in what's going on cover something else that's happening. God gives a chance to share with his people something else out of the word. And chapter 12, when you first read it, if any of you read it this week leading up to this message, we're probably sitting at home going, what in the world is happening here? There's a lot in this chapter, which is why the notes are really thick. So I'm, I'm just hang with me. It's going to be important. But chapter 12, God gives us an overview of the war between God and Satan 
an overview of the entire Bible in chapter 12. That's what chapter 12 is, is an overview of the entire Bible. And it's incredible because it goes all the way from the beginning in Genesis 3 to the very end in Revelation 19. And, and it's all condensed in one chapter in the Bible. And it's a great picture of the warfare going on all around us. It, it really reveals Satan's strategy from the beginning and his attempts at the very end. It does answer a lot of questions about Israel. And, it, and what I want you to get an appreciation for is you could read the Bible as really the whole thing cover to cover as a strategy between God and Satan for what's really going on. God discloses something, Satan reacts. God discloses something, Satan reacts. But he always, God always has a way to defeat what Satan's next move is. Always. And that's the, that's the glorious victory that we have in him. So let's just open up the chapter here. On the, I'm on slide six in your notes. Chapter 12, verse one. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. So a lot of people will read this and instantly just start making guesses at who this woman is that's clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars and what's going on here. But honestly, the greatest interpretation of the Bible is the Bible. And everything, remember, everything in Revelation, think of it this way, is written in code, and that code is explained somewhere else in the Bible. You just have to know where to go find it. That's the key. So there's no need to guess here of who this woman is. The Holy Spirit tells us who she is through Jacob all the way back in Genesis 37. If you remember Joseph, Joseph had two dreams, and he kind of made the mistake of sharing it with his, with his family, and that's what ended up getting him exiled and sold into slavery and taken out of the families, really the family in Israel and taken down to Egypt. But in Genesis 37, verse 6, And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obstinance to my sheaf. So the picture is Joseph was raised higher than his brethren, and they were all bowing down to him. That's the first dream. The second dream is the same thing confirmed, but it answers who this woman is and who the sun and the moon are. Verse 8, And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? See, they're interpreting it for us. Shall you reign over us? Shall you be brought higher than us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. So the, the verse 9, And he dreamed yet another dream and told it his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obstinance to me. So same kind of concept here. First it was the sheaves, now it's the sun and the moon and 11 stars. And he told it to his father, so he goes to Jacob and tells it to him, and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? See, Jacob is interpreting the dream for us that the sun and the moon are Jacob and Rachel. The 11 stars are his other brethren. And he's asking him, what is, what is your dream? Are you saying that we are all going to come and bow down to you? 
And indeed, that is what happens eventually, right? Because Joseph goes down, God creates a famine over the whole world to move 70 people from Israel down to Egypt to get them out of that and into that, that Egyptian empire, which is pretty amazing. And his brother envied him, but his father observed the saying. See, his father kept it in mind. It's kind of like Mary, when she observed the saying, she retained it in her heart. She thought about it long and hard. So Jacob defines the sun and the moon as Joseph's parents and the 11 stars as his brothers. Now, in Revelation 12, there are 12 stars because Joseph is one of the 12. In Genesis 37, he calls it 11 stars because he's seen the other 11, his other 11 brothers that are the 12 tribes of Israel. And so that's the difference between the 11 and the 12 stars. So this woman that we see in chapter 12, verse 1, is undoubtedly Israel. That's the woman. The woman clothed with the sun and the moon. But Jacob was renamed Israel. He had the 12 sons that were the 12 tribes of Jacob. And this woman is Israel. Now, the 12 stars, it's interesting not to get, you can look this up on your own, but the 12 stars likely refer to the Maseroth, which is a, a Jewish phrase for what Babylonians twisted into to modern day the Zodiac, the 12 constellations. Uh, there's, there's the signs in the heavens. Remember in Psalms, God says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, those constellations actually lay out God's plan of redemption in advance from the line of the tribe of Judah to the virgin Virgo. And it lays out that, that whole scene of the virgin birth is laid out in those constellations. Now in Babylon, what they did was they twisted it into fortune telling, horoscopes, the zodiac is what we call it today. And God has that strictly forbidden in the Old Testament. So I'm not advocating, do not get into horoscopes. They are evil, demonic, satanic, stay away from them. But God had intended it for something very good originally, but it was twisted by Satan and his adversaries. So there's four women in the book of Revelation. Uh, two women are wicked and two are righteous. And so you have Jezebel from Revelation 2 in the letter to Thyatira. You have the harlot in Revelation 17 and 18, Mystery Babylon, who's writing this, the harlot Mystery Babylon, which we'll get into a lot. Israel here in Revelation 12, and then the church, which is the bride of Christ in Revelation 19, 7, and 21, 9. The church is always portrayed as the virgin bride of Christ. Okay, she's not a pregnant lady to give to bring forth a man-child, which is what we're going to see. Israel was that. She was always, Israel's always portrayed as a woman in travel about to give birth. In that, and we're going to look at that in a second. But 2 Corinthians 11:2, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So I included Revelation 21:2 also, just because it's the namesake of our church here, New City. In Revelation 21:2, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her her husband. And that was the namesake that God had for our church, that that new city he's preparing as the forever home of the bride of Christ. And so you see that in Revelation 19, 2 Corinthians 11, we are the bride. Our forever home is in Revelation 21. So it's pretty amazing. But these four women, it's, it's important to separate 
who they are throughout the book of Revelation. Okay, so in verse 2, and she being, so this is Israel, and she being with child cried, traveling in birth and pained to be delivered. So as I mentioned, Israel is often portrayed as a woman in travel. And you see, if you're not sensitive to this, you won't pick it up in the Old Testament, but it's all over the Bible. And I just picked out four examples. Isaiah 66, 7, before she traveled, she brought forth before her pain came. She was delivered of a man-child. The same thing, same language here, the man-child. Now we're going to find that man-child is Jesus. He was to come forth out of Israel, the seed of David, right, the root of, Je of Jesse. He was to come forth out of Israel, which he did. Micah 4.10, be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travel. So there it is again. Micah 5.2, but thou, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that we, that she, which traveleth, hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. Jeremiah 4.31, For I have heard a voice of a woman in travel, and the anguish as of her that bringeth forth her first child, the voice of the daughter of Zion that bewelleth herself, that spreadeth her hand, saying, Woe is me now, for my soul is wearied because of murderers. So you get this picture over and over that Israel is the woman in travel, the child she is to bring forth is the ruler in Zion, the Messiah. That's who it is, so this man-child. Okay, she gives birth to the man-child in verse 5. And one of the most famous verses you see at Christmas is Isaiah 9-6. It's one of my favorite verses at Christmas. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. It hasn't happened yet, but it will it will happen. It's promised all over the Bible and re-promised to Mary before Jesus is even born that her son would sit on the throne of David. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. See, a child is born and a son is given are not synonymous. The child is born is his humanity. The son that's given is his deity. And that's, that's the difference. That's why the Holy Spirit is giving that, that juxtaposition there. So in, so in Genesis 3.15, we get this, I will put enmity between the woman, thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. See, he's the seed of the woman. Shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. In Galatians 3.16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So the seed of the woman, that starts the scarlet thread all through the Bible is the seed of the woman. Now, it's, a, it's amazing to me how over five-sixths of the Bible deals with one topic that really we disregard a lot today in modern Christianity, which is Israel and their role, their prophetic role in God's plan, what, they, what God has in store for Israel, the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel and for his people, and you have this constant theme, Romans 8, 9, and 10 is all about Israel past, present, and future. And God's not done with Israel. He set them aside for a moment, 
but he has a deep plan for them when you really study the whole counsel of God's word. Many of the promises and covenants involved were unconditional with Israel. He put Abram asleep in Genesis 15, and God alone walked through the, the division of that animal. And that's where we get the phrase to cut a covenant, because this animal was cut, and then God does this figure eight through it, and he alone recites the terms of the agreement with Abram about the land grant, for one. It's totally unconditional. God has promised that land from the river Nile through Egypt to the river Euphrates through Iraq to Israel, and they will occupy it. It's just a matter of, do they get it before the millennium or after? But he has given it to them already. And really the problem a lot with, that we have in the world today with eschatology is that we don't understand the role of Israel in the end times. It's all about them and Jesus pushing them to the brink to cry for him to return. And we're going to look at that verse in a minute too. But verse, uh, verse 3 Revelation 12, 3, and there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. So this great red dragon, we'll later find in, verse 12, in chapter 12 that it is Satan. Obviously, he's always the dragon. It's, it's amazing to me how many ancient cultures worship the dragon, and you know where that's rooted. That's rooted in satanic worship. That's where they get it. It's, it's to worship this figure, this creature, the dragon. Well, Satan is the great red dragon. The seven heads and ten horns represent his final world kingdom. So at the end of times, the final world kingdom will have ten kings that arise. The Antichrist rises out of those ten, and he puts three of them down. So there's seven left. So the seven heads and ten, and ten horns represent his final world kingdom. The ten kings rise up to usher in the final world system. The Antichrist puts three down, which is why there are ten horns, but only seven crowns. So the horns are always authority. The seven crowns are the seven that are left. They give all of their authority to the Antichrist, and then he obviously takes it from there. But you see the same illusion in Daniel 7, 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So in Daniel 7, Daniel's getting this vision of the four beasts that represent the four Gentile kingdoms that would rule the world. That's the same dream Nebuchadnezzar got in chapter 1 and 2 in Daniel, chapter 2 really where he interprets the, the statue with the different metals, the five different metals, and Daniel gives you that answer. God sees them as terrible beasts, whereas the Gentile king saw them as precious, valuable metals. So that's the difference there. That same analogy, it's in Revelation 13, which we'll look at next time, 17.3, 17.7. It's all got the same illustration of seven heads and ten horns. So in verse 4, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for devour, to devour her child as soon as it was born. So there's a double meaning here. Yes, we know that a third of the angels from this verse, a third of the angels rebelled with Satan. 
So he drew a third of them with his tail. I think there's a double meaning here by the Holy Spirit. It's not his tail, T-A-I-L, that's the imagery, but his tail, T-A-L-E, in terms of his lie. Right, it's the same way he deceived Eve, his tail, that you will not surely die. You know, hath God said, it's the same thing. And he goes and he convinces a third of the angels to go with him in this rebellion. So for every one of them, there's at least two more of the good guys, which are great odds. But, you know, that aside, we've got the king of kings that created them to begin with on our side. So we do, even if all 100% of them rebelled, it wouldn't have mattered. But he, he likely deceived them because, think about the angels, they had fellowship with God. They were created directly with him or for him, and they had fellowship in the throne room of God. And they were cast down to the earth at this point. So we know that, that Satan still has access to heaven from Job chapter 1. And we, we'll learn later in chapter 12 that he accuses us day and night before the throne. So he's the accuser of the brethren. So at some point, they will be cast down to the earth. In other words, they lose access to heaven. Read that as dimensionally down. They, they're no longer, they no longer have access to the other six and a half or maybe multiple dimensions that we don't have access to right now. They're cast down to the earth, dimensionally down. So it raises a couple of questions. You know, when did Satan rebel? And when does he lose access to heaven? So we'll, we'll unpack those in just a few seconds here. So in verse 5, and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So Jesus' destiny here is to rule all nations, not just Israel. Don't, don't lose fact that Jesus will rule the world from Jerusalem, a political capital in the millennial reign of Christ, a thousand years. And, that's a, and there's a thousand used at least six times in Revelation 20 when we get there. So has that happened yet? You know, that's the question. Uh, certainly not that I noticed. I haven't noticed Jesus ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, but he will rule all nations with a rod of iron. Psalms 2, this phrase is used three other times in the Bible, so four total. Psalms 2 verse 9 and thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So Psalms 2, the whole Psalm 2 is a, is a dialogue between the Trinity. If you read Psalm 2, we went through this in church months ago, but if you read through Psalm 2, it's a dialogue between the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son. And your challenge there is to figure out which one is speaking when. But they're, dis they're discussing how Jesus will rule and break his enemies with a rod of iron. Revelation 2, all the way back in chapter 2, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers even as I received of my father. Revelation 19, 5, when Jesus shows back up, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So ruling with the rod of iron, that's, that's exactly what he will do. That's his destiny. He'll break his enemies with the rod of iron. He will rule with the rod of iron on, on the earth. And we're seeing that right here in the overview of the whole Bible. Okay, look what it says though at the, kind of at the back end or back half of verse five. And her child was caught up 
unto God and to his throne. So immediately you think about this as the ascension of Jesus, but there's probably something a little even deeper here in that the word used is harpazo in the Greek. It's the same word that we translate out of the Latin Bible into rapture. It's to be caught up, snatched away by force, to be caught up to his throne. And we know, again, from the verse we looked at earlier, we are the body of Christ. So we are going to be caught up to the throne. And what I love about this is even in chapter 12, after we are caught up, then all of the bad things start to happen. The tribulation, the, the red dragon, the woman flees into the wilderness. The dragon tries to kill the woman. All of that happens here in chapter 12 after we're caught up. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 16, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. There's that word, harpazo, to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. It's not very comforting to think that you've got to survive the tribulation and the dragon's attempt to persecute Israel and to wipe her off the map. It's not a lot of comfort there in that. You know, if you're fleeing for your life and stocking up ammo and trying to make sure you've got supplies for your kids, Jesus wants you to not be ignorant of that issue. Because if you are not comforted by the promise of the rapture, then you live with that spirit of fear that you see everything that's going on in the world and you think, I need to get ready. I've got to survive. Instead of doing what Jesus told us to do, which is occupy until I come. And <clears throat> there's over 100 verses in the New Testament that we are to expect him at any moment. And you can't expect him at any moment if the details down to the day and month are written out in that seven-year period. You would know exactly what's going to happen, when it'll happen, and when he'll return at the end in Revelation 19. So it's, you've got to rightly divide the word of truth through the doctrine of the rapture on that point. So verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. See, at the midpoint of the tribulation, when the abomination of desolation occurs, the Jews flee Israel. And the Bible does not specifically say that they go to the rock city Petra but that they go into the wilderness, it's likely that they go to the rock city Petra, and there's some reasons for that. But it do, the Bible does give us clarity on the nations that do not fall under the thumb of the Antichrist, which is modern-day Jordan. We'll look at Daniel 11 in a second. But Jesus tells them in Matthew 24, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. See, he's giving instructions to the Jewish remnant that are alive during the tribulation that have accepted him that when they see this event, the abomination of desolation, they are to flee. Get out. Don't even grab, grab clothes. 
don't do anything. You run and you run now. Because from that point on is the great tribulation. Jesus defines the back half as the great tribulation. And I've got a chart here we'll look at in a second. But modern day Jordan does not fall to the Antichrist, which would make sense as to why, because it gives them a place, a safe, supernatural, protected area for them to flee through once they leave Israel, once they flee Jerusalem. And that's in Daniel eleven forty one. He shall enter also into the glorious land, but he is the Antichrist. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand. Even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. So modern day Jordan doesn't not fall to the Antichrist, which is amazing because they're a border. They're right there next to Israel. And yet somehow they escape. So in verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness. So the woman flees. The woman, notice that the woman flees after the church, the body of Christ, is caught up to the throne room of the universe. Caught up. Then the woman flees. So again, it's just an, it's an overview of the entire Bible. Where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days that they should feed her there. <clears throat> it's not real clear who the they are, but it, it's likely that it could be angels. Uh, we know that in Psalm 78, <clears throat> when the children of Israel were through the wilderness or roaming the wilderness, God fed them angels' food, which was the manna. And I think that's amazing. Will God once again feed them manna as they're in the wilderness being preserved and trying to hide out from the Antichrist, which is pretty amazing. And that's in Psalm 78, where you can see that it was, it was angels' food, the manna. Okay, they will feed her, the Jews, for 1,260 days. So you, you get this phrase again, and we've covered this several times in the Bible, but 1,203 score days. It's that half-week designation yet again. So you have half of the 70th week of years from Daniel 9:27, Revelation 12:14. You've got 1260 days is in Revelation 11:3 and here in 12:6. 42 months is in 11:2 and 13:5. Time times and the dividing of time is in Daniel 7:12:7 and Revelation 12:14. Where times is a dual in the Hebrew, it always means two. It's like in the English where we say both or pair. It's our word for a duel. It means two. So this, this time period is, is given all throughout the Bible. And I hope this chart helps. I threw this together, hoping that it helps you guys understand that seven-year period, the seven-year tribulation. So keep in mind, we call it seven years. That doesn't mean seven years of 365 and 0.25 days. Our calendar is 365 and a quarter day per year. Okay, in the Bible, God always uses 360-day years as a year. So not that it makes a huge difference, but just keep in mind on our calendar, it's not a full seven years. It's something, it's five and a quarter times seven. So what is that, 38.25 years or something, or days, I mean, short of a full seven. So the Antichrist confirms the covenant in Daniel 9.27. That's what triggers the start of this seven-year biblical period. And on the bottom, the start of the seven-year tribulation, it's the time of Jacob's trouble from Jeremiah 30, verse 7, 
the 70th week of Daniel from Daniel 9. And that first half is three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. And then at the midpoint is the abomination of desolation as spoken of by Jesus in Matthew 24, Daniel 9, 27 again. And then from that point on is the great tribulation as Jesus defines it in Matthew 24, verse 21. That's where Israel flees into the wilderness, Revelation 12, 6, Matthew 24, 15 through 20. And again, the back half, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. And then at the end of that back half is where Israel petitions Jesus to return from Hosea 6. And that's when Jesus rides back in and we are with him in Revelation 19, the King of, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So there's, there's just a, a diagram. You could throw in so many verses on where they fit into that seven-year period, but to give you just that broad overview to hopefully frame, give you some framework as you're studying your Bible. So verse 7, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. So I want you to notice who is standing up here to fight. It's Michael and his angels. So Michael is always a military commander that fights on behalf of Israel. He always is that when he shows up in the Bible. Gabriel is, a, is someone that shows up to announce something to do with the Messiah every time he shows up. He's got a message about Jesus. <clears throat> but Michael shows up in four other spots in the Bible. Daniel 10, 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So this is when the messenger finally breaks through to Daniel when he's fasting for 21 days. The messenger is being at war with the prince of the power of Persia. He has to get Michael to come alongside and help him fight through the prince of the power of Persia to get a message to Daniel, which is incredible. So you get a a view in Daniel 10 of really the warfare going on behind the scenes. So Michael shows up again in verse 21, but I'll show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, and there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael, your prince. Okay, in Daniel 12, and at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for Israel of thy people. And there's that phrase again, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even at that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And then the last place Michael shows up in the Bible is Jude 1, verse 9, where he's fighting Satan over the body of Moses. And we went into a lot of details about that last week, about the two witnesses. So the war will migrate from the heavenly dimension to the earthly dimension So in uh, verse, verse 7, you get a, a picture once again of Michael fighting and going to war on behalf of Israel as a warrior for God. So in verse 8, these angels that Michael's fighting with prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent they called devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Again, we see that Satan will lose access, right? He's cast out of heaven. 
he loses access to heaven. Right now he has it because he accuses us day and night in Job chapter 1. So Satan throughout the Bible, you know, you can read Ezekiel 28, and it's all about his origin. The angels cheered at the creation of, of the earth in Job 38, 6 through 7. So we know that Satan was created before the earth was in Genesis 1, 1. And that's in, that's in Job 38, 6 and 7. He rebels in Isaiah 14, and there's the five I will statements. I will set my, my throne on the sides of the north. I will be like the most high. And that's his temptation to everyone today, that you will be like Jesus. Remember when he tells Eve, he says, surely then will your eyes not be opened and you will be like God. That's his goal, not to supplant Jesus, but to be co-equals with him. And that's, it's a subtlety, but it's very, very insidious. Uh, he rebels against God between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And we'll go through that here in church at some point and go through a, a deep word study on the, on the Hebrew in the book of Genesis and how you know that God did not create the earth confused in verse 2 as we see it. And you get that from Isaiah 45, 18, that God did not create the earth, tohu. But you get to verse 2, but the earth had become tohu, or confused. And God's not the author of confusion. So he didn't create it that way. So what happened? Well, Satan's rebellion is what happened. And it sits dormant. In Jeremiah 4, there's a judgment on the earth, and it sits dormant for what could have been billions of years until the Holy Spirit brewed over the deep and starts putting it all back together again. It's a really interesting study. We'll go through that in here sometime. So he forfeited, he forfeited dominion of the earth to Adam in Genesis 3. He shows up, you know, and he just always has something against Adam, and you wonder, what is this guy's deal? Why is he, why is he picking on Adam? What has he got against Adam? Well, the problem is he rebelled between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. He lost dominion of the earth, and thus it was forfeited to Adam, so he wants it back, and that's his goal. To, that's part of his goal, but to fight Adam and to deceive him to get it back. Adam forfeited it back to him when he fell, which is why Jesus could, or Satan could tempt Jesus with the whole world in Luke when he takes him to that, that other dimension to look at the whole world. Uh, Satan has been a liar from the beginning. He's at enmity with man still from Genesis 3.14. So you can follow the whole Bible as a strategy between God and Satan. And obviously we know who the victor is, it's Jesus. But Satan's strategy, Cain's murder of Abel from Genesis 4, the corruption of Adam's line in Genesis 6, which led to the Nephilim and the corruption of the human genome. You've got Abraham's seed in Genesis 12, the famine in Genesis 50, the destruction of the male line in Exodus 1, Pharaoh's pursuit into the baptism of the children of Israel, from Exodus 14, the repopulating of Canaan from Genesis 12, and then the attack on David's line. So every time God focuses in his plan of redemption, Satan focuses in his attack. And what I want you to get an appreciation of is how God always leaves a way out. He always leaves a way in his word to get around that strategy. So the attack on David's line Yet Jerome kills his brothers in 2 Chronicles 21. The Arabians slew all but Azariah. Athila kills all but Joash. Hezekiah is assaulted in Isaiah 36 and 38. 
And then it culminates in Jeremiah 22, verse 30. There's the blood curse on Jeconiah, and Satan really thinks he has won at this point. So if you remember, the Messiah had to come through. Oh, thank you, Mason. Appreciate it. Um, the Messiah had to come through David's line. Hope you guys can hear me okay. I'm sorry, my, the enemy did not want me to talk to you guys today about this. Okay, thank you, RC. Appreciate it, man. So <clears throat> every time God hones in, again, the Messiah had to be the seed of David, had to come through David's line. Well, Satan then starts to attack David's line. And ultimately, it culminates with his offspring gets so bad that God pronounces a blood curse on them in Jeremiah 22:30, And you had to think that, man, Satan probably just was celebrating. I did it. There's a blood curse on the line of David. The Messiah cannot come forward. Thus, I am victorious. Well, <clears throat> the problem with that is God always leaves a way in his word around it. And it's a strategy. So we're going to look at this one specifically because I think you'll be, you'll be blessed to see the Lord's strategy here. Then you have Haman's attempts from Esther 3. So when you get to Numbers 27, the children of Israel trying to inherit land in the wilderness, if you remember, they're, they're about to go in, they're trying to divvy up inheritances, and God pronounces that if you do not have a son, you cannot pass on your inheritance to your daughters. Okay, there's that little law in the Torah that you had to, had to pass from you to a son. Well, this guy named Zelophehad has five girls, and so his inheritance can't pass on. So they go to Moses, and Moses goes to God, and he gets an exception, and God says, yes, grant an exception that the inheritance may pass on to them if they marry within the tribe, then the father's inheritance could pass to the son-in-law. Okay, so he writes this little exception in the Torah, and you're wondering, okay, if every detail speaks of Jesus, Lord, what are you doing with this? Because this is, a, this is an odd one, but it's an exception written into the Bible, the law of beneficiaries. So when you get to Jeremiah twenty-two thirty, God says of Jeconiah again, write this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. So David's male line is cursed right there in Jeremiah 22. His offspring can no longer rule in Jerusalem, but yet Jesus is going to be of the seed of David. So how do you get around that? Well, you get around it by the law of beneficiaries with the daughters of Zelophehad, that God wrote it in in advance. And when you get this, when you look at the genealogies of Jesus from Matthew and Luke, see, in Matthew, it goes down through Solomon, the first, the first son of Bathsheba. It goes all the way down. You get to Jehiachin. His name's Jehiachin, Jeconiah. He's got a couple different names in the Bible, so it could be confusing, but it's there. And you could probably read this better in your notes, but when you get down to him, he's through that line, through Solomon. And <clears throat> so it stops at him. Well, through his line is Joseph the legal father of Jesus. Well, then you go to the second surviving son of the Bathsheba, Nathan, and you go all the way down to Mary. So she's within the tribe. So what the inheritance could not go through Jeconiah to Joseph, he marries within the tribe. Thus, that inheritance rightfully belonging to Jesus would pass from Mary 
over to Joseph, the legal father of Jesus, only through a virgin birth. And so that's Jesus's exception to this blood curse in Jeremiah. And you get all of that from this little exception all the way back in Numbers 27 with the daughters of Zelophehad, where God writes in a way out years in advance. And he knew that Jeconiah would blow it. And he'd have to do this. And Satan was probably screaming victory. But yet, he had a way out through a virgin birth for the inheritance to pass over the bloodline to the legal line of Jesus. Pretty incredible. So the New Testament, Satan's strategy is still going. You've got Joseph's fears in Matthew 1, Herod's attempts in Matthew 2 when he kills all the babes, at Nazareth in Luke 4. There's two storms in the, on the lake of Galilee. It's not really a sea, it's more of a lake. Uh, it's not that big. And then his ultimate strategy was the cross. And all of this is summarized right here in Revelation 12. But, you know, you would think about after the cross, why would Satan still be at it? What does he have to gain by continuing to war with Satan, with uh, Jesus? And what he thinks he can do is right out of Hosea 5.15. Because for Jesus to return in Revelation 19, Israel has to be pushed to the brink and petition him to return. So if he can wipe out the believing Jew, then they can't petition, thus Jesus can't return. That's his attack right now. In the meantime, we as the church are collateral damage in that war in that he's just trying to make us as unproductive as we can to not share the gospel with Jews, to not convert Jews to messianic believers. That's the key. But in Hosea 5.15, God says, I will go and return to my place, that's, this is God speaking. So he leaves his place. He's going to go and return to it. That's the ascension after the cross. Till they acknowledge they as Israel, acknowledge their offense, and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. Or early, it's in the King James. In the Hebrew, it really means earnestly, intensely. They will seek me in their affliction. That's why the seven-year tribulation is known as the time of Jacob's trouble the focus is on the people of Israel. That's the focus. And God is allowing them to be drove to the brink so that they petition his return. Okay, in verse 10 of chapter 12, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God. So this is, again, the kingdom coming after the woman is drove in the wilderness and protected, and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. See, this is Satan's current occupation, is accusing us day and night. That's his, that's his main occupation right now. And you would be wise not to accuse the brethren, because that doctrine comes straight from Satan. So I, I hate listening to Christians who accuse other Christians of things. I just, it drives me nuts because that doctrine comes straight from Satan to accuse of the brethren of something. And, he, and it's really why there's such a, a chasm in the church right now in that what happens, you don't agree with, uh, with something that a Christian says. And so what happens, you just start accusing them behind their back instead of politely going to them and speaking to them openly in communication and praying together about the issue. Instead, you just accuse and you just kind of ostracize, stay at arm's length. 
You don't want anything to do with them. I've seen Sunday school class after Sunday school class after Sunday school class break up because of this one issue that somebody says something that you don't agree with. Not you personally, but you know what I mean, the collective you. And so instead of working that out and praying through it together, you just people just accuse behind someone's back. And it's just heartbreaking. But that's his occupation. So verse 11 in chapter 12. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. They will overcome, the Jews and Israel will overcome the same way that we overcame, by the blood of Jesus. In Hebrews 9, 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So verse 12, therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. So there's somebody rejoicing at this point that's dwelling in heaven. You know, I wonder who that could be. That's us. If you're in this room and you're saved, that's you. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. That's not us if you're in Jesus. And to the seal, for the seal and for the sea, excuse me, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he per- persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. So he's persecuting Israel. That's the whole point of the back half. So verse 14, and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. There's that same period of time again. But eagle's wings, God puts Israel on eagle's wings from Egypt in Exodus 19. He covered them with eagle's wings in the wilderness in Deuteronomy 32. And he brought them back from Babylon in eagle's wings in Isaiah 40. So that is all through the Bible and that illusion there. So the last set of verses. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Satan tries to wipe out the children of Israel, God's children, the same way God wiped out his, Satan's children all the way back in Genesis 6 with a flood. So the same thing happens, only this time God opens the earth and swallows the flood, which is interesting. The earth swallowed God's enemies in number 16, so that's prophetic also of the earth swallowing the enemies of Israel right here in Revelation 12. Okay, so how we always end, the call to action you know, my, my passion and what I hope all of you will do is continue to get in the Bible on your own. And because you're not alone in it, 1 John 2.27, you have no need of a teacher, but the anointing of the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. So again, keep praying that. Keep seeking God's word in your life and let it build your faith. Faith, what is it? Hebrews 11.1, 1, it's, it's the substance of things hoped for, which is Jesus the evidence of things not seen. And why is it important? Hebrews eleven six. for without faith, it's, import, it's impossible to please him. So you can't please God unless you have faith. So how do you go get it? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So you have to have faith 
to be an active participant for the Lord and his, what his work, his kingdom, to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, to be overflowing with the power and the authority of Jesus in your life, to say, sin, you have no place anymore. I'm not a slave to you. And you have that authority once you get saved. So if you don't know the Lord, if you're watching this online, if you're in this room and you need Jesus, it's simple. It's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that, it's that simple. The question is then, do you leave the enemies drowned in the water of the Holy Spirit or do you let them have roots still somewhere in your life? You have the authority over them. Do you actively take it? That's the question. So Romans 10, 9, if you need help with that, reach out to us through email, call us, uh, come to church, come see us at church. If you need something, if you need prayer, I really appreciate all of you being here today. I'll close this in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for, again, the overview of the entire Bible in Revelation chapter 12. We thank you that, God, you have prepared a place for us a place for us for all eternity that you promised to us in John chapter 14. We thank you that Jesus, you went to go fashion a room, a room addition onto your father's house for us, the bride, to be caught up to you, to get to go home with you. Thank you for that promise. Lord, we do look, we ever look for your return and we are preparing and living continuously as if you will come back and get us at any moment because that's what your word says. And so, Lord, as we look at the signs of, on the earth, as we look at the signs prophetically, as we look at what's going on in your word, at the end times, we see the stage being set. And, Lord, we do not lo know how much you will let us see, but, God, as much as you do, we'll be blessed because it will only strengthen our trust and reliance on just the word of God. So, God, be with us as we leave this place be with us next week at the baptism service. I thank you for the promise that angels will be singing at Lake Arcadia with us when we go into that water and come out and drown any enemies that may be trying to attach themselves to our lives still today. Thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>